My name is Scott Nye, and this is Talking Radical Radio. to realize that the decisions people make that entangle them with the criminal justice system, these decisions aren't made in a vacuum. These decisions are made in the context of social circumstances that are happening in the community. Probably one of the greatest influencers, I think, is the economic divide that we see. We know that our prisons are way overpopulated by people who are poor, by Indigenous folks, by Black folks. That's the voice of James Rustin. He's today's guest on Talking Radical Radio, talking about the Toronto Prisoners' Rights Project. This show brings you grassroots voices from across Canada. We give you the chance to hear many different people who are involved in many different struggles, talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, in the belief that such listening can strengthen all of our efforts to change the world. Rustin was born in the early 1970s and grew up in the small suburban city of Burlington, Ontario. As a teen, he was what you might describe as troubled. As a kid, he had seen his older brother die in an accident right in front of him, and he had never had the right supports to deal with that trauma. His separated parents were loving, but there was also plenty of dysfunction to go around. As he put it, quote, I started to get into a little bit of mischief. A couple of property offenses, a break and enter, I went joyriding in cars, end quote. When he was 17, he and a friend at the time came up with a plan that they saw as a way to escape. They would rob someone. In the course of the robbery, said former friend, according to Rustin, quote, got carried away and wound up beating the victim to death, end quote. Caught a week later, Rustin was tried as an adult and ultimately sentenced to life with the opportunity to apply for parole after 25 years. Inside, Rustin had more supports than many prisoners, including a supportive family that stayed connected and access to counseling. He took advantage of educational resources and kept himself physically fit. But even so, whatever rhetoric its proponents might spin about prison as a site of rehabilitation, in reality, prison causes harm and trauma. Despite his best efforts, after several years inside, he developed a pattern of sometimes using drugs as a way to deal with the distress and the trauma. At some point along the way, Rustin's sentence was reduced on appeal from Life 25 to Life 10, meaning he was eligible for parole earlier. On multiple occasions, however, his eligibility for parole was postponed or his parole itself was revoked because he fell into patterns of substance use that he had developed precisely as a response to the trauma of prison. Currently, Rustin has been out on day parole for about two years. He's worked tremendously hard, developing a variety of strategies to deal with his circumstances, including meditation, yoga, and music. Another important element for him, as for many people dealing with the impacts of a long prison sentence, has been human connection and relationships, things that prison actively destroys and discourages. An important source of that for him has been his involvement in the Toronto Prisoners' Rights Project, or TPRP. According to the TPRP's website, it brings together former prisoners, the loved ones of prisoners, and a range of other activists, quote, to shed light on the harms caused by incarceration and connect prisoners with social, financial, legal, and health supports. We are committed to abolition and building sustainable communities rooted in community care, transformative justice, and accountability, end quote. The organization has numerous projects on the go. A regularly updated resource guide for prisoners, 
a crowdfunded pandemic emergency support fund for prisoners, a food box program for prisoners who are on parole or the families of prisoners, a range of public advocacy campaigns, including actively supporting people on the inside when they take collective action, a webinar series, and lots more. Rustin has been involved in a few different TPRP-related initiatives, including a City of Toronto-funded effort to paint large murals in over-policed, underserviced neighborhoods in the city, and he's also been involved in working as part of an interview-based research project on the human rights impact of COVID protocols in prisons. Rustin describes prison as a quote-unquote harming system that damages people and communities and that doesn't make anybody any safer. He acknowledges that the abolitionist vision of a future without prisons can be a challenging one. He said, quote, the answer, I think, lies upstream, so to speak, end quote. That is, understanding all of those unjust circumstances that harm people and that push people into situations where they harm each other, and understanding safety to be first and foremost about transforming all of that. I speak with Rustin about his own experience of the prison system and about the Toronto Prisoners' Rights Project. My name is James Rustin, and I am a lifer on parole. That means I'm serving a life sentence that only expires when I die. I was arrested at the age of 17 in 1989 for my participation in a robbery that went too far and ended up in the death of the victim. I'm currently living in a halfway house. I've been on what's called day parole for the last almost two years now. I've been finding little bits of work here and there. I wanted to take things fairly slowly. Reintegration after long periods of incarceration has been difficult for me as it is for many people. One of the projects that I've been involved in is the Toronto Prisoners' Rights Project. They are involved in all these great projects that support prisoners, whether they're serving time inside or on parole in the community or even after. Before we get into talking about the organization, tell listeners a bit more about yourself and about your experience of the prison system. I was born into a young family. My parents were in their late teens, early 20s, and things didn't work out with them. And so our family split. During a weekend with my father and his girlfriend at the time, we went camping at the Alora Gorge. Early one morning, the kids took off from the campsite and went down to the river and we were playing a game. My brother found a piece of plywood and he laid it down in the weeds and he held on to this branch and steadied himself on the piece of plywood. And it all happened very quickly. The plywood went out from under him and he went down in the water and that was it. He was gone. I never saw him again. And it was just a terrible, terrible experience for myself and obviously for both my parents. I feel grateful to have family, which is something that I've seen in the prison system that is not common. A lot of people don't have family or have lost their families or been estranged from their families for various reasons. I grew up feeling somewhat alone, I guess, with this trauma. Back in the 70s, there wasn't really an understanding of trauma and how to deal with it. And boys and men in particular were not encouraged to express our feelings. And none of us really got any help for it. And I think it impacted our abilities to communicate. So we didn't have the greatest relationships, even though there was a lot of love and a lot of care in our family. It was a difficult circumstance to grow up in. 
by the time I reached my teens, I started to get into a little bit of mischief, a couple of property offenses, a break and enter, and I went joyriding in cars. And that quickly escalated into a plan to escape from my life. I ended up associating with another boy at my high school who was also struggling with his own mental health issues. And we came up with this plan again to escape. And we decided we were going to rob a man of his vehicle, just a random victim, somebody who looked affluent. And in the course of that robbery, my co-accused got carried away and wound up beating the victim to death. I wasn't expecting that to happen. I don't know if I knew what to expect. I'd never been involved in an assault like that or in that kind of serious offense. My girlfriend at the time, she and I were picked up about a week later in British Columbia. I was only 17 at the time, and they decided ultimately to transfer me to the adult system because it was a very brutal assault. And my co-accused and I were both convicted of first-degree murder. We were both sentenced to life 25, which means you serve 25 years in prison and then you are eligible to apply for full parole. I served the first seven or eight years in Collins Bay Institution, which was a fairly high but medium security facility. I was very much a fish out of water, was not familiar with the criminal element having grown up in the small bedroom town of Burlington. So it was quite a shock. A sustained shock, I would say, and it was not easy to adapt to that environment that was just so filled with violence and dysfunction. I was able to find some support through my family who came to visit me regularly as well. I initiated counseling with the psychologist, although even today they still don't provide that across the board. The psychologist just took pity, I think, on me and gave me some of his time. I was fortunate at year seven and a half, I appealed my sentence based on the fact that two weeks after I had been sentenced to life 25, the law changed to make life 10 the maximum sentence for a youth who'd been transferred to adult court, which made me eligible at seven and a half years for day parole, not living in a halfway house. Unfortunately, I had gotten somewhat involved in the everyday goings-on of the Collins Bay prison, which there was a drug subculture, there was a gambling subculture, all kinds of people making alcohol and smuggling and dealing drugs. There was muscling that was going on, intimidation. And while you're living there, most people at least want to avoid all of those problems on all of that kind of behavior that tends to cause problems. But I found that particularly the substance use became a coping strategy for me. And I think it is for a lot of people that are incarcerated because of the isolation and despair that people feel and the lack of resources and the lack of real authentic human connection. For the first several years, I was adamantly opposed to participating in the drug subculture. It frightened me. You know, you can't help but become friends with people when you live with them for so long. And, you know, I started to identify with people, even though I didn't have the same criminal history. We were all experiencing this same trauma together. Some of the behaviors like working out were positive and going to school as well. I was encouraged by other lifers who were taking post-secondary correspondence courses to get into that myself, which I did. But there was also this drug subculture that was going on. 
And eventually over several years of watching this and kind of living in it, it became normalized for me. Particularly the use of THC I found was helpful inside, even though it is illegal and even still in the prisons in spite of being legalized in the community. And so I came with punishments and I remember losing my visits with my family for several months after a positive urinalysis with THC in it. I'd gotten into this cycle where I'd used the substances, usually pot, but sometimes other substances as well, and I'd get caught for it. I'd get some type of punishment, and then I'd have to wait a couple of years before I could start talking about getting released again. I got caught in this cycle like many prisoners do for 18 years. It was finally then that I was able to abstain long enough and get out. And I was doing well by all accounts. And at some point, I ended up using drugs and drinking alcohol, contrary to my release conditions. And I was revoked and sent back to prison for another couple of years. As I was coming out into the community, I, I was able to put most of the substance use behind me. But what I found in the community personally was alcohol. I think 80% of Canadians consume alcohol. And it was just so easy to engage in it, especially with the kind of lingering trauma from the prison experience that I don't think that I really realized had affected me. I ended up back and forth in and out of the community several times, usually for alcohol use. Took a deep look into my past and into my childhood trauma. It took me several years of just going through that process. I had to do the same thing with the prison experience as well. And so I've managed to remain on day parole now for almost two years. I've employed a lot of self-care tools over that time that I've learned through various treatment programs and from psychologists and just from self-help, things like yoga and meditation, playing musical instruments and writing and reading and doing anything creative, really. And probably another one of the biggest things that's been helpful that I hadn't realized growing up is relationships. And I think because of that early childhood trauma that interfered with relationships, I didn't develop very good social skills. And that's something that I've had to work on coming from that prison experience where you're discouraged from making those relationships. And these prison systems by nature disconnect you from family and friends in the community. And so it's a real uphill battle to learn to develop social relationships. And that's something that has also been gradual. That's where the Toronto Prisoners' Rights Project has been a huge support for me in providing this space and support. Almost a circle of care is one way I heard somebody recently talk about it. So what is the Toronto Prisoners' Rights Project and what kind of work does it do? The Toronto Prisoners' Rights Project is a grassroots organization that's made up of community members, students, professors, I think there are a couple of lawyers and volunteers, some people with lived experience, and they work from the ground level to address the needs of prisoners and prisoners' families, whether it's healthcare needs, financial needs, access needs to various supports. They're involved in a number of fantastic projects. 
We just recently completed the fifth edition of a prisoner resource guide that is just a fantastic resource for anything prisoners might need, halfway houses, mental health supports, education, anything. And that's just one of maybe a dozen different projects. Another great project is a prisoner emergency support fund. This began as a response to the pandemic. We sought to raise money and raised over $200,000 to provide prisoners with a one-time $225 stipend that they can use to purchase food, clothes, make telephone calls. For some people coming out on parole, it may provide work clothing, transportation, or other family expenses. And we still have probably about a thousand applications currently outstanding. So we're looking at raising another 200,000 to cover those. We also have an artworks project where we have been contracted by the city of Toronto to produce four large scale murals in the most over-policed, underserviced areas of Toronto. We're working with community organizations to get feedback from people in the community who have lived there, some with lived experience, so that we can get some of their stories and some of their purpose and meaning in life reflected in some great art that's going to be produced by local artists. We also just wrapped up a good food box project where we raise money to deliver food to those in need, again, prisoners on parole or their families. We have an up-and-coming participatory defense project where prisoners and their families can join together and network to help to face some of the legal issues that prisoners and their families face. We have ongoing support for people inside, you know, across the board. In one particular case, there's a gentleman who is in the Ottawa Carlton Detention Center. He's filed a human rights complaint. So we're trying to support him by getting the word out about his case and it's being broadcast online. You can find it through the torontoprisonersrights.org website or our Facebook page. We have various webinar series as well for things like harms reduction, as well as a mental health support webinar. We've gotten mental health first aid training for a number of our members. And we've taken some of that content and we are in the process of creating our own mental health support first aid program for, again, prisoners and their families. What facets of the organization's work have you been most involved in? Personally, it took me some time to adjust to the pace of things. They're pretty quick. They're very sharp, these folks. And it took me several months of just kind of sitting back and watching at our bi-weekly meetings. Every two weeks, we meet to discuss ongoing projects, changes we need to make or updates. The first project I got involved in was this artworks project. Contacting local paint stores was one of my tasks to see if they'd be willing to donate in exchange for some publicity. We're still visiting various sites. We've got four places picked out. I've been doing some walk-arounds, taking photographs, looking for walls that would be great for murals. I've also been active in sharing my experience as a person with lived experience in the group. People are often looking for that sort of firsthand account of what does happen in institutions and within the carceral system. So I've been involved in a number of speaking engagements with universities and high schools and alternative schools, some youth diversion programs. I was also fortunate to be asked by one of the professors involved to participate in a research project examining the 
impact of pandemic protocols on prisoners' human rights. So we've been interviewing prisoners and getting their accounts of just what this pandemic has looked like from inside the prisons. The Prisoner Emergency Support Fund is always something that I like to try and get out there through social media or in speaking engagements like this one. If people are interested in supporting prisoners, then they can go to torontoprisonersrights.org. We also have a Patreon page that's fairly recent. And we just finished an auction, our second annual auction. And from some of the items left over, I believe we're going to set up a raffle for those. And we may also be selling them in our store, which is one of the other projects that we have is we have lots of cool swag like t-shirts and hats that represent defunding and abolition. And people can also find those again on our website or through the Facebook page. Based on both your experience with prison and also your experience of working with the Toronto Prisoners' Rights Project, what do you think that people in the general public need to know about what needs to change about the prison system? You know, people are just now getting familiar with the term abolition. And I think it worries people because, well, it's not a new idea, but it hasn't been tried yet. And it hasn't been tried yet because I think people have been approaching the problem with our correctional system as if there's something that we need to substitute it for, like we need to take out the prison and then put something else in its place. And it's hard to imagine what else you would put in place. It's a tough question because the answer, I think, lies upstream, so to speak. And I think people are starting to realize that the decisions people make that entangle them with the criminal justice system These decisions aren't made in a vacuum. These decisions are made in the context of social circumstances that are happening in the community. Probably one of the greatest influencers, I think, is the economic divide that we see. We know that our prisons are way overpopulated by people who are poor, by Indigenous folks, by Black folks. They've been blaming the people for the decisions they've made to steal rather than looking at the conditions which we have forced them into. It reminds me of a Thich Nhat Hanh saying. He's an Eastern philosopher. A lot of people have heard of him. He has a great saying, don't blame the lettuce. And so when you have a garden and you plant your lettuce and it doesn't grow, you don't blame the lettuce. You go and you change the conditions in which you're growing the lettuce. And I think we need to look deeper into that dynamic for human beings. I think if we put any human being in a desperate, disparaging condition, you're going to get a very similar reaction from everyone. It makes life difficult. And when life becomes increasingly difficult for people, that's when it becomes difficult for people to make healthy choices. When people are extremely stressed or traumatized, which is most of the population of prison, all of the guys that I've met in prison over all the years that I've served, 26 of the last 32 years have some sort of trauma, neglect, or abuse in their history. The conditions that they've made these choices in. We know things like trauma in Indigenous communities is very generational. It's sad to watch this prison system that has just sort of taken over as these residential schools. And it's apparent in the disproportion of Indigenous population where we have, you know, women in particular, 40% of the women's population are Indigenous prisoners, whereas I think it's 8% of the community. 
it doesn't add up. We can't blame the indigenous. We can't blame the individuals. I think we need to look again more deeply at the circumstances that our society is putting people into. And it's easy for people who have done well to think of our society and our system as working because it's worked for them. And I don't think people realize that there's a reciprocal to that. And for everyone who is doing very, very well, that's taken resources away from people who are now not doing well. And there's, I think, a lack of regulation as far as how much of the world we can exploit. You know, I'm not an expert on finance or politics, but I know in the 80s when Ronald Reagan was president and he went in and he lowered a lot of the regulations for corporations to make money. And ever since then, there's been this exponential growing divide between the rich and the poor. And we talk now about the 1% and it's never been so extreme as it is now. It's a wonder that our prison populations aren't more. In Canada, anyway, they've been declining for the last 20 or 30 years, which is a testament, I think, to the people and to people, you know, taking on this challenge and doing their best to overcome this disparity and these problems that we're facing. And I think it speaks to organizations like the Toronto Prisoners' Rights Project, who are giving their time and their energy into trying to balance this growing imbalance. I think it's a natural human reaction that we're having to respond to this disparity. And I'm proud to be a part of a group that's doing that. Every day I see on the news another high-ranking politician or corporation that is somehow subverting the system in order to capitalize financially or to avoid taking responsibility for environmental destruction. And I think we need to bring in some regulations there. I think we need to really seriously revamp some of those conditions. And if we do that, then we won't be creating the conditions that are so difficult for people to manage and that put them in situations where they make poor decisions. And I think we'll see a great decline if we can do that in the amount of people we put in prison. And ideally, and the money that we'll save in not having to put those people in prison, we can turn these prisons into healthcare facilities for those select few, those very few that are in the prison system who have extreme mental health issues that, you know, cause them to do these serious offenses, which again, it's a very small fraction of people that we've built this industrialized system around. You just need to put, you know, one Clifford Olson or one Paul Bernardo on the news and everybody's running to build another jail or another prison. But in reality, we're putting our families in there. Our grandparents are in there, our children, our brothers and sisters, you know, these are us we're putting in there and they're going to come back out. And so the idea of putting someone into harm, which is what the current system is, it's just a harming system. It's a retribution punishment system. And we put people in there with the idea that they're going to somehow become better people from it, but we actually harm them and people get more serious mental health issues, you know, PTSD. You have been listening to my interview with James Rustin of the Toronto Prisoners' Rights Project. To learn more about the organization, go to torontoprisonersrightsproject.org. 
To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link for the radio show. On the site, you can sign up for email updates or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, iTunes, SoundCloud, and other platforms. I'm Scott Nye, a writer and media producer based in Hamilton, Ontario, and the author of two books of Canadian history told through the stories of activists, published by Fernwood Publishing. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you tune in again next week. Thank you.